In January of 1625, a French Protestant nobleman named Benjamin de Rohan, who was the Duke of Soubise, uh, made a successful raid on the French Royal Navy at the place where the river Blavé empties into the Bay of Biscay. Though at one point his expedition seemed certain to fail in that he was detained, literally held at bay by contrary winds and by a cable and a great iron chain that was placed across the port by the French royal uh, forces that were there. He was nevertheless able to capture 15 or 16 ships and eventually sail them out. His men were able to, to chop through the cable and uh, were able to sail out to the Ile de Rey. And, but why, we might ask, why would a French nobleman seek to capture the ships of the French Royal Navy? Well, the answer is complicated. France at that time gave public sanction to two religions. The king and most of the population were Roman Catholic, but since the Edict of Nantes in 1598, the French government also granted freedom of conscience and freedom of worship, at least in some parts of the country, to the French Reformed, or more commonly known as the Huguenots. The goal of the Edict of Nantes had been to bring an end to the wars of religion between Protestants and Catholics that had devastated France in the 1500s, but even after the edict went into effect, there were still sometimes periods of war between the Huguenots and the French king. Benjamin de Rohan had set out to capture those ships from the French Navy in 1625 because he knew that those ships were intended by the Navy to be used in a blockade and the destruction of the Huguenot stronghold at La Rochelle on the Atlantic coast. And so this was a preemptive strike by a French Protestant force against the French Navy to prevent them from using those ships against the French Protestant city, the city of La Rochelle. And the actions of Benjamin de Rohan touched off another war between the king and the Huguenots. Only in this case, the battle lines were not always that clear-cut. Many of the Huguenots, including many if not most of the Huguenot pastors, opposed the war in this case. In the town of Montauban, for instance, five uh, out of the five Huguenot pastors in the town, they were split four to one. One in favor of going to war, four opposed. One of those pastors who was opposed to the war was a Scotsman ministering in France named John Cameron. As one historian described their position, Cameron and his colleagues opposed the war because they maintained that there was an absence of persecution, which would have been the only cause that could have justified a resistance to the king. The supreme dominion of God remained unassailed, Freedom of conscience was permitted throughout the whole kingdom, and not a single persecuted or afflicted church had implored their help. These pastors said, in essence, we're not being persecuted. We're still able to freely worship God and obey Him, and nobody that is being persecuted is asking for our help, and therefore we have no grounds to fight against the king. But the problem was that in the town of Montauban, the problem was that if the Huguenots majority in the pulpit opposed the war, the Huguenots in the pew favored the war. And in one of the oddities of history, when Pastor Cameron went out into the street to oppose a hostile mob who favored the war, he was badly beaten and subsequently died of his injuries. As the French writer Pierre Bale put it, we see what Mr. Cameron got by preaching up moderation in a town where the Duke of Rohan's emissaries had preached with the people to run to their arms. Who would have believed that a Scotsman would have suffered himself to be beaten for maintaining passive obedience? From Pierre Bale's perspective, uh, 
That's not what one would have expected from a Scotsman. He probably would have more likely expected a Scotsman to stand up and resist anything that even faintly smelled of tyranny. But instead, the Huguenot pastor, John Cameron, died at the hands of his co-religionists, at the hands of the Huguenot mob, for opposing their hostilities. To say the least, professing Christians have not always been of one accord as to how we should interact with the government and as to how we should respond to the government. Christians have not always been of one accord in regard to what biblical submission to governing authority actually looks like in practice. The events of the last 13 months or so have been no exception. So what should we do? As in any matter of faith or practice, we should look to the word of God. And this is the very subject regarding which we find Paul instructing Titus in our text for this morning. And so let's look to the text. We'll be in Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 15, and we'll read down through chapter 3, verse 2. So Titus chapter 2, beginning in first, uh, verse 15, and then we'll read down through chapter 3, verse 2. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable and gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Now, as we look at these three verses this morning, we'll consider them under two main points. First, more brief, and second, more large. First is ministerial authority. Secondly, governmental authority. So first of all, ministerial authority. After having spoken to Titus about the various groups in the church here in chapter 2 and grounded his instructions to them on the grace of God, which teaches us how to live and how not to live, Paul now commands Titus to speak and exhort and reprove in regard to these things with all authority. As a minister of God's word, he functioned as a representative of the Lord, and therefore as one who conveyed not simply a human message, but rather a divine message. And therefore he was to exhort, or to urge, he was to speak, he was to reprove or to rebuke. And as such, he was to do so with authority. He was not to allow any professing believer under his charge to disregard him. And so verse 15 instructs Titus as to his duties in regard to the churches on Crete, and by extension this gives instruction to all ministers as to their duty to speak, to exhort, to reprove with all authority, and to disallow disregard. In other words, this is what I'm supposed to do. This is what the elders of the church are supposed to do, to teach and to urge upon believers the things that are fitting for sound doctrine. And when people get out of line, according to that standard, we're called to rebuke them. Now, that's awkward. It's not easy. Certainly, we're not allowed to lord our authority over you as elders, as we find that in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 3, but we are commanded to exercise authority, to speak, to exhort, and to reprove with all authority. And so, please pray for me. Please pray for Jim. Please pray for Jamie as an elder in training. Pray that we would be faithful in these regards, in our teaching, in our urging, and when necessary, in our rebuking. Pray that we would be patient, gentle, kind, not quarrelsome, but also appropriately bold and frank when occasion requires it. And I would say that I, in particular, need your prayers in that regard because of my own personal tendency, namely to shy away from confrontation. 
I don't like to be confrontational. That's, that's not me. I like to get along. The problem is, though, that sometimes pastoral ministry requires confrontation. And so please pray for me. Please pray for Jim. Please pray for Jamie. We need much grace and help from the Lord and much wisdom in this regard. And Paul also says here, let no one disregard you. Again, how's that for awkward? I'm not allowed to allow you to disregard me. Now, I won't say much about this, but I will say this. Just don't do it. Don't disregard your elders. And I say this not because of my own personal preference or on my own authority or my own whim, but rather on the authority of verse 15. And if verse 15 instructs ministers not to allow anyone to disregard them, then the flip side of the coin, which instructs the congregation in this regard, is found in Hebrews 13, 17, where we read, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. So again, I'm not going to enlarge upon this, but... We have a command that we are to speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And likewise, the congregation's command comes from Hebrews 13.70. That brings us then to our second point, governmental authority. So Paul transitions as uh, he goes from verse 15 to chapter 3, verse 1, transitions from speaking about ministerial authority to the issue of government authority. And so he says, remind them to be subject to rulers to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. So this is, this is basic Christian civics, we might say, right here. Now, it could be very wrong in my assessment of current events and events that may be coming our way, but my sense is that a consideration of Christian civics, how the Christian ought to function in the realm of the civil state, is going to be something that's very important for us. Because if you're watching the news at all, in our country, there's been... A lot of violence, a lot of mobs, a lot of rioting, looting, all kinds of things going on for the last, give or take, 11 months, right? And if you look in other places in the Western world, we see on the, on the flip side a, also a rise in what seems to be edging nearer and nearer to government oppression, tyranny. Some of the, some of the religious liberty issues coming, uh, coming out of Canada in the news are very concerning, and so we've got two, two sides of the coin. On the one hand, we have uh, maybe greater government tyranny coming down on Christians. And on the other hand, we see a society that is lawless. And so how should we respond as Christians? What are our responsibilities in regard to obedience? Are there ever circumstances when civil authority can legitimately be resisted or overtly disregarded and disobeyed by Christians? That is a question which, thankfully, we have not had to deal with very often here in this country. But there may come a day when we really need to have answers to some questions like these. And so let's look to the text, specifically verse 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. The instruction given here is general. And in general, this should be our mode of operation, to be subject to governing authorities over us. The instruction here is brief. But this general instruction is given in more expanded form elsewhere in the New Testament. We read that passage from 1 Peter chapter 2 earlier together. Uh, Romans 13 is the other main New Testament text that speaks of how we as Christians should relate to the civil government. And so we find in Romans 13, 1 and 2, 
Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they have opposed and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. And so the powers that exist in the realm of the civil government, be the one wielding the levers, good or evil, have their authority from God. And thus it is that our Lord Jesus Christ said to Pilate in John 19, 11, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. Jesus acknowledged that he was under the governorship of Pilate. Pilate was his governor as a citizen there in Judea. And so Jesus acknowledges that Pilate, humanly speaking, is an authority over him, but he also says, you would have no authority over me unless it were given to you from above. God was the one who ultimately had ordained that Pilate would be governor in Judea at that time. Certainly, human agency within the Roman government had placed him there at that time, but nevertheless, this was all worked out under God's sovereign hand. And so Daniel says in Daniel 4.25 that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and he bestows it on whomever he wishes. God is the one who ordains governments and ordains governing powers. Earthly authority comes from God. Those with power have been placed there by God. And therefore to resist them is ultimately to resist what God has ordained and therefore to disobey God. And the purpose of government authority is to limit evil. And so as that passage in Romans 13 continues, Romans 13, 3 and 4, Paul says this, For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. And so this is the purpose of earthly governments, to, to limit evil, to punish evildoers, to keep society in check, so to speak. In the words of 1 Peter 2.14, their function is that of the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do right. So God is the one who ordains the powers that be. He is the one who ultimately places power in the hands of those who rule, and therefore we are commanded to be subject to them. And this applies whether the rulers are godly or wicked. The civil powers that existed in the days of the apostles were certainly wicked. The Roman government was not a Christian government in any stretch of the imagination. But the apostles submitted, and by the Holy Spirit they have commanded that we do the same. And this applies across the board. It applies to the paying of taxes, which are explicitly mentioned there in Romans 13. It applies to employment laws, traffic laws, speed limits, and I dare say even to mask mandates. In those particular instances and many, many others, it doesn't matter whether we happen to agree with the law or not, whether we happen to think that the law is effective and helpful or not. It doesn't matter whether we think it is necessary or not. We must, in the words of our text, be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. And this includes every good deed in general, as well as every good deed in the civil realm. We are to silence the mouths of those who would speak evil against us by showing that we are not seditious people. As we saw in 1 Peter 2 in that reading, right? it is the will of God that by doing right we silence 
the ignorance of foolish men. We must show the world that our faith in Christ does not make us bad citizens, but good citizens. One ancient Christian writer described the Christians by saying that they pass their days on earth, but are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. As believers, we're called to live such honorable, upright, and law-abiding lives that anyone who would wish to accuse us of doing wrong would have to shut their mouths because they have nothing bad to say about us. So Paul says, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. And the instructions go on then in verse 2, that we are to malign no one, that we are to be peaceable, gentle, and show every consideration for all men. This is how we're to live as Christians in all realms of life, in the civil realm, in the realm of the church, in our families, at home, all of life. This is how we are to conduct ourselves. This is how we are to obey the laws and excel the laws of the land. Not allowed to malign or speak evil of people. This command certainly doesn't mean that we need to pretend that everything is always all right or that everyone of whom we are aware, is always living like a saint. To live in such a way would be unexcusably naive and also dishonest. Now, Paul is quite open and blunt, as we saw earlier here in the book of Titus, about the sinfulness of the Cretans, right? So it's one thing to be honest about the evil that we see in some particular action or in some person, but it is a different thing to malign them. To malign them is to speak the worst of someone, to paint them in such a way as to unnecessarily poison the well about them. It's to stick the knife in and give it a twist, right, in regard to this person. We're not allowed to do that. Instead, we are to be peaceable and gentle and to show every consideration for all men. Christians aren't supposed to be the people who are picking fights. Now, certainly sometimes conflicts become unnecessary and unavoidable, But our goal must be that for which we pray when we pray for the authorities as we're commanded in 1 Timothy 2.2. Our goal is so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. That's our goal as Christians, is to lead a quiet and tranquil life in all godliness and dignity. Sometimes we do have to stand up for what is right and therefore stand to oppose what is wrong. We see examples of that in the New Testament Paul called out Peter publicly in Antioch for not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. Paul had no qualms with warning against false teachers. But nevertheless, our goal as believers must be peace. We must live peaceably, must be gentle to others. We must show every consideration for all men, or as the ESV translated it, perfect courtesy toward all people. This is is all-encompassing. Every consideration for all men. These are words to live by at all times, and increasingly so in a polarized time like ours. When we see vitriol and hatred and animosity coming out of people, we cannot and must not respond in kind. When we're hated for Christ's sake, as we will be, we must love. When we are verbally attacked for Christ's sake, we must be gentle and peaceful, when all around us it may seem that no one is showing any consideration for anyone, we must show all consideration and courtesy and humility towards everyone. This certainly doesn't mean that we try to get the world to like us by pandering to them or by 
abandoning the, the truth of God's word, whether it's the morality and holiness of God's law or the truth and exclusivity of the gospel of Christ. We don't bow or bend to the culture in regard to the issue of God's word. We stand our ground in every place where the truth of God's word is concerned, but at the same time, it's also important to make sure that we are not fighting the battles of the Lord in the spirit of the devil. We don't want to do that. Rather, we have to remember the great truths of the Proverbs, great truths like Proverbs 25, 15. By forbearance, a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue breaks the bone. Likewise, Proverbs 15, 1 and 4. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. A soothing tongue is a tree of life, but perversion in it crushes the spirit. Here in Titus 3, we're given these instructions for how we're to conduct ourselves in regard to the, the civil government and how we're to conduct ourselves toward mankind in general, but especially in regard to the obedience that we owe to the civil government we may naturally and rightly wonder if there are any exceptions to the basic rule that we must be subject and obedient. But we should note that as written, there are no explicit exceptions made in the main New Testament passages that deal with the issue of civil government. Right? There's no explicit exceptions in Romans 13, no explicit exceptions in 1 Peter 2, no explicit exceptions here in Titus 3. That should tip us off to something, namely that our default mode should be obedience to the powers that be and compliance with the law of the land. That should be our, our default mode. That default position, however, does not eliminate all potential difficulties or all exceptional cases. And so we need to think very carefully about this question. Sometimes there is a conflict among earthly civil authorities. And so just for instance, and this is, this is purely anecdotal, I cannot vouch for this with a footnote, but I was once told about a situation regarding regulations on something like the, the warning backup beeper on a, on a truck or a tractor. You know when you put it in reverse, it's supposed to have the warning backup beeper. And anyways, OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, demanded that the warning beeper had to be so many decibels loud so that in their judgment it would be loud enough to warn the workers about the danger of the vehicle that was backing up so that they could be out of the way. OSHA says it's got to be this loud. And then meanwhile, on the other hand, the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, said essentially, you're not allowed to have a warning beeper that loud. I guess they thought that if it was that loud, it would be noise pollution or it would hurt your ears or something like that. And so what do you do? As I see it, you've got, you've got two options. You can try to tackle the issue legally, talk to an attorney, invest the time, money, and energy to sort it out legally, go to court, talk to your congressman, or something like that. Or in a case of contradictory bureaucratic requirements, it also seems like a reasonable and godly option just to keep your head down try to do the best you can within reason, and try not to sweat it too much. But that's on the more trivial end of the spectrum. Sometimes the stakes are quite a bit higher. Let's say that you're living in America and it's 1778, and you are a loyalist at heart. You think that the war for independence is actually an ungodly rebellion against your king, King George III. And meanwhile, the colony, or maybe calling itself a state now, has implemented a draft, and they are trying to conscript you for, uh, to fight in the Continental Army 
against the British. And so you've got two earthly authorities that both claim that you owe your allegiance to them, and they're telling you to do two opposite things, and you are not going to be able to please both sides. In that case, you're probably going to need to sit down, do some serious thinking about who has the better better grounded claim to your loyalty, probably going to need to take into consideration what the laws of the British Empire are and what the laws... Uh, or excuse me, what the arguments of the American patriots are for the revolution, you'll need to pray and seek wisdom and grace from God and seek to obey the authorities over you that have the best rightful claim for your allegiance. And sometimes you may enter into a situation in which the dictates of a governing official actually contradict the existing laws. There are such things as illegal orders and unconstitutional Laws And sometimes the official laws of nations and empires permit resistance or have built into them some legal mode of recourse when certain conditions are transgressed. And so this was the argument of the legal experts who were working in the Protestant territories of Germany during the 1530s and 1540s. The Protestant territories of the Holy Roman Empire during the Reformation had organized themselves into a defensive league in case they were attacked by their own emperor, the Holy Roman Emperor. In case he was trying to snuff out the Reformation, they wanted to be ready and be able to defend themselves and defend the faith handed down to them in the Reformation. And so the the legal experts who were working in those Protestant territories made the argument that the constitution of the Holy Roman Empire actually allowed for the princes of the empire to resist when the emperor reneged on his pledges to the princes. So what they were advocating was not rebellion or mob violence. They were not attempting to change the regime of the empire. They were simply advocating the right of lower magistrates, lower government officials in their particular context to defend themselves and to resist authorities when those authorities had overstepped their legal and rightful bounds. Thomas Bilson expressed the principle here at play this way in his work, the true difference between Christian subjection and unchristian rebellion. He said, when princes offer their subjects not justice but force and despise all laws to practice their lusts, not every nor any private man may take the sword to redress the prince, but if the laws of the land appoint the nobles as next to the king to assist him in doing right and withhold him from doing wrong, then they be licensed by man's law and so not prohibited by God's law to interpose themselves for the safeguard of equity and innocence and by all lawful and necessary means to procure the prince to be reformed. In other words, when the laws of the land permit resistance by the lower magistrates, if, the, uh, if their superior oversteps his rightful bounds, this is within the law of the land, and so therefore it is not opposed to God's law for those authorities to step up to the plate and resist the unlawful authority coming down over them. But what we need to be clear in all of these cases mentioned so far is that the command given here in our text in Titus 3, the command to be subject to rulers and authorities and to be obedient, is still enforced. The issue in all of these cases mentioned so far is that sometimes you just have to decide which authority is actually the legitimate authority. You have to decide which authority is legitimate and which one is not, or at least which authorities take precedence over the others. 
And even in those cases, private citizens are not a law unto themselves. You still have to be subject to rulers. Once again, subjection to authority is the default Christian position required by the word of God. But certainly when we look to scripture more broadly, we recognize exceptions even to that. One commentator on this passage in Titus helpfully pointed out that the requirement had then, as it has still, its limitations. The duties of rulers and ruled are reciprocal. And absolute, unrestricted authority on the one side is no more to be contemplated than unqualified submission on the other. For neither is in accordance with the essential principles of truth and rectitude. Obedience to external authority can be due only insofar as that authority has a right to command. When it oversteps this and issues injunctions which reach beyond its proper line of things, the higher principles of obligation come in. We must obey God rather than men. Be not partaker in other men's sins. And this is a distinction that we make in our church confession when we say we believe that civil government is of divine appointment for the interest and good order of human society and that magistrates are to be prayed for, conscientiously honored and obeyed, except only in things opposed to the will of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the only Lord of the conscience and Prince of the King's of the earth. That is the point at which we may disobey the powers that be and the laws of the land when they are opposed to the will of our Lord Jesus Christ, the will of Christ as revealed in Scripture. And there are certainly examples of this principled and godly disobedience to the powers that be given to us in Scripture. Perhaps the most famous is Acts 5:29, where Peter and John were before the Sanhedrin, they were commanded to stop preaching in Jesus' name. And Peter replies, we must obey God rather than men. That's what it comes down to. If the orders of men contradict those of God, we must obey God rather than men. We see another example of this godly disobedience in Exodus chapter 1, where the Hebrew midwives were commanded by the king of Egypt to put to death the baby boys who were born to the Hebrews. So we read of them in Exodus 1.17, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. To send to kill babies, these women feared God and knew that what the king had commanded them to do was a sin, and so they did not obey. And as that passage in Exodus chapter 1 continues, we find later that God blessed these women on account of their disobedience to the king of Egypt. God rewarded them for what they did, and what they did was to disobey their governing authority. We saw another example of this in our Old Testament reading this morning from 1 Samuel 22. Saul told his guards to put the priests to death because the priests had helped David to get away. Now, if you remember the account in 1 Samuel 21, the chapter before that which we read this morning, 1 Samuel 21, David sneaks in there to, to see the priest, and the priest has no idea what is going on. And so he was no doubt caught off guard when Saul hauled all of the priests in, uh, in before him and are accusing them of being on David's side. Saul commanded his guards to kill, we could say to murder these priests, and they refused to do so. This is exactly what they should have done. The king commanded them to do it, and they refused to obey. The king certainly has the power of the sword, but that doesn't mean that he's allowed to kill anyone and everyone 
whom he desires. He must use the power of the sword with justice. And since he was not doing so, the guards did the right thing in their disobedience. Similarly, think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They rejected the authority of their king. They were commanded by Nebuchadnezzar to bow down and worship the image that he had set up, and they steadfastly refused to do so. In all of these cases, the point of the refusal to obey was a point when the thing commanded was something that is contrary to the will of God. So we're not allowed to commit murder or idolatry or any of these things, even if we are told to do so by a legitimate authority. We must obey God rather than men. Now, obviously, the specifics of future events are unknown to any of us, but I think we must all, at the very least, be ready to face the possibility that the historic freedoms that have been granted to the church and to us as Christians here in our country may not always be what they have been. In other words, during the course of our lives so far, it has been very rare for us to be forced into that corner where we have to choose, am I going to obey God or am I going to obey the government because I can't do both? That's not a corner that we have been pushed into for the most part. For the most part, we've been able to do both, to obey God and the civil government. And that, we should all acknowledge, is a great blessing great blessing that we should be thankful for, a great blessing that we should pray to God that he would allow this to continue. Oppression and persecution are sometimes beneficial to the church and may serve God's purposes, but these are not something that we should seek out on our own. Indeed, the psalmist prays in Psalm 119, 134, Redeem me from the oppression of man, that I may keep your precepts. The oppression of man can hinder us from keeping God's precepts, or at the very least, make it difficult to do so. That's nothing to be desired. Redeem me from the oppression of man that I may keep your precepts. But on the other hand, we must not fear being pushed into this corner should that occasion come. We shouldn't fear persecution if it comes upon us. And we should be ready for it. And we should be ready for it in full humility not boasting in our own steadfastness or our own strength to obey. This is what Peter did, right? Peter says, I would never deny you, Jesus. And in doing so, he was relying on himself and his own strength. And may it not be so with us. But rather, let us look to the grace of God to keep us steadfast, knowing that unless he strengthens us and holds us, we'll fall and we will fall quickly. And should such trying times come upon us, we should be ready for them with our eyes wide open so as not to be caught off guard. And by that, I mean that we need to be ready for two kinds of attacks, at least, if not more. We need to be ready for, for both what we might call frontal assaults and also flanking maneuvers. Obviously, a frontal assault is a head-to-head -head conflict when it is very clear that an attack is coming. It's clear that it is an attack. It's very clear where the attack is coming from. If someone forbids us to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's a frontal attack. If someone for, in, in authority forbids us to declare the holy law of God, if we're forbidden to declare that certain things are righteous and that certain things are sinful according to the word of God, that's a frontal attack. Jesus told us to teach all that he has commanded us. Jesus is our great God and Savior, King of kings and Lord of lords. We must obey God rather than men. Now, should such circumstances happen, we need to be thoughtful about 
how we obey God and how we disobey man. We might need to take some extra precautions and seek some wisdom as to how to obey God. We might want to look to our brothers and sisters in countries where they have experienced much of this so as to, to glean wisdom from their practice. But under those conditions, we must disobey man and must obey God. Those are frontal attacks. But what about, what about flanking maneuvers? Flanking maneuvers are a bit more tricky. That's when one army tries to get around on the side of their enemy and attack them from the side in a position where they're not as strongly fortified, where they might not be expecting the attack and so on. If you're able to get on the side, on the flank, you might catch them weak and catch them not expecting the attack. And we have to be ready for those kinds of attacks as well. And what this means is that we have to continue to obey God rather than men, even if there may be plausible reasons offered to us for seeking to cause us to disobey God and to comply with man. And so, for example, if a law that was passed that forbid all Christian churches from coming together and worshiping because the government doesn't like the Christian message, that's a frontal attack. We might have to do some thinking and strategizing as to how we're going to disobey that order, but we know that we must disobey because we must gather with the church. But let's say that an order is given that the church must be shut down and a plausible or potentially plausible reason is given for the shutdown. Let's say COVID-19, for instance. Something like that is going to involve a little bit more homework on our part. As it is presented, at least, it's not purporting to be an order that is aimed at Christianity. It is an order that is purported to be slowing a pandemic. And slowing a pandemic is not a bad thing, right? That's, that's not a bad thing. So we understand that there are some exceptional circumstances where church services might need to be canceled, where we ourselves might need to be absent from church services. If we get three feet of snow between Friday night and Sunday morning, I think we all understand we're not having church Sunday morning. And we're not going to be upset if the local officials say, cancel your church services this morning. It's too, too dangerous on the road to be out. We, we understand that. And we understand also that we have the stomach bug. We ought to stay out of church until the bug passes. So sometimes there are circumstances that rightly bring changes upon our normal gathering. Doing the best we could under God, last year we suspended all in-person services for a number of weeks until the powers that be gradually allowed us to open back up. But for the sake of the point that I'm trying to make here, just do a little thought experiment with me. What would our responsibilities be under God if the restrictions for gathering on the church now were the same as they were a year ago? What would our responsibilities be? A year ago, COVID was new, we didn't know much about it, there's no vaccine, and so on. We've learned a lot over the year, and progress has been made. But what if the restrictions still were as great today as they were then? Or what if things went on three years, five years, ten years? Somebody calls me on the office, a phone, I'm sitting here during the week, and says, hey, is your church meeting on Sunday? And I say, no, we honor the government around here. The government says no church services because of COVID. We haven't had a church service in ten years because the government says so because of COVID. Would that be the right thing to say 10 years down the road if those orders were still in place? Now, we, you may be sitting there thinking, well, that's absurd. Of course the government would not do that. Well, don't be so sure. Some might. Thankfully, they have not done so here. But just imagine, there could be some things that at least start with plausible 
reason for, for canceling church services. And then once those freedoms have been lost, they might not be as easily regained. And so at some point, under God, we would just have to say, well, no, we actually do need to gather as Christians. And then we would have to figure something out. The point here that I'm trying to make is that there may be some attacks that are not completely straightforward. They may not even be directed against Christians as such or against the church in particular. But nevertheless, whether such government mandates are intended to persecute and constrain Christians or not, we must always recognize that our ultimate allegiance is to Christ. Our ultimate obedience must be directed toward him. And any time an earthly authority requires something of us that is contrary to Christ's command, our ears need to perk up and we need to start thinking and praying and looking to the word of God. Now, it might be prudent and wise and godly to close church services for a week or two during a blizzard or for six or eight weeks during a pandemic, but it is never right for us to turn aside from the moral commandments of God. It's never right even if we have to cancel church services, that's one thing. But it's never right to murder because the government says so. It's never right to commit idolatry and so on because the government says so. We must never turn aside from the true worship of God or deny our Lord Jesus Christ or practice or sanction those things that he has forbidden in his word, whether those are foisted upon us brazenly or in our face or whether those things come around and seek... Uh, various means to catch us off our guard. Though our default, obviously, again, has to be to be subject to rulers and authorities. But when the two are in conflict, we must obey God rather than men. And the reason is clear. Jesus is our great God and Savior. King of kings, Lord of lords, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. He commands us to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, to render to God the things that are God's. Christ is the one who has given himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people who are zealous for good deeds. He's called us to himself through repentance and faith. He saved his people and therefore is worthy of our complete love and obedience. And so let's continue to trust him and to obey him. Please pray with me. Our Father, we ask that you would help us because we know that Naturally, we are rebels, rebels against you, rebels against human authorities, be they parents or governments or otherwise. Lord, we ask that you would help us, that we would submit ourselves to you, and in doing so would submit ourselves to those human institutions that you've placed over us. We ask, Lord, that you would give us hearts that, uh, that are submissive and not rebellious, but Lord, we also ask that you would give us hearts uh, that recognize the difference between these authorities. Hearts that have complete allegiance to Christ and qualified allegiance to all other authorities. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.